Welcome to Conversations of the Strange. Conversations of the Strange. It's my pleasure, Don. And, first of all, true crime is such a fascinating genre, and you wouldn't know that it's as old as it is. Uh, I've found books written by, of all people, Alexander Dumas, who did The Three Musketeers, The Man in the Iron Mask. He's written books on true crime. Mm -hmm. And uh, I suppose, I mean, like, true crime is gone. Like, the Bible has recordings of people stealing, killing, uh, committing adultery, and uh, committing all sorts of crimes. And when, when, when did the genre of true crime become meaningful to you? Uh, probably around the, when I was eight, nine or so, around the same time that I became interested in the paranormal and um, strange behavior in general. For me, uh, when I do a lot of writing where the paranormal and crime overlap, in fact, those are usually my favorite stories, but crime by itself is, I, I'm just one of millions of true crime fans. Uh, I will read almost any true crime book, except for certain topics that I don't like. Uh, I, I, can't, I can't read about torture, I can't read about, I don't, I, I can't read about rape. Uh, there are a few other things, like people that prey on children and stuff like that, but uh, it is still one of my favorite, it is probably my favorite genre, because I will read almost anything that is... Right. Um, on a side note, you and I were talking the other day about the difference between paranormal research and true crime research, and I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that. What was, what is it about true crime that you really, that gr you gravitate towards? I, I mean, obviously paranormal is very interesting, but paranormal just kind of, sometimes it just kind of fits, fits in its own little n niches, and uh, I'm going to say that it seems like that the ghost collecting that was done in the 18, or the ghost hunting that was done in the 1800s, and is maybe not too dissimilar to what's being done today, maybe other than the tape recorders and the electronic handheld gizmos. But um, whereas it seems like with true crime, uh, um, catching criminals, 
the whole science behind that is just jumped by leaps and bounds. That's true. But to be honest, it's not the uh, it's not really the the forensics or the investigation or the the procedures that interest me so much. What I find so fascinating is the extraordinary behavior that people uh, exhibit. Uh, like I, I'm, I often tell people that I wrote I wrote a story, a, a non-paranormal story about a man who built a, a an axe with a seven-foot handle and a can and and uh, that was held up by a string. And the string was eventually, he put a, 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 put a candle next to the string, and when the candle burned down, it, the seven-foot axe dropped and chopped his head off. And I often say that I think that's at least as bizarre as a ghost, if not more. You know, the ghost is, it comes into the room, it walks through a wall, and there it is. Right, there's, right. there's not much to add. There's not much to pursue. There's it, You can look at those things for 20 years and not come up with anything that you didn't have to begin with. At least I, I haven't heard of any ghost hunters who spend years hunting ghosts and come away with it saying, my gosh, I know so much more about ghosts now than I used to. Right. You know, maybe they'll... Uh, Maybe they'll realize, maybe they'll decide rather that there are certain techniques that work a little bit better, or they will discover that, oh, this sort of place is better than that sort of place. But none of that touches on the essential issue of what's a ghost. Right. What is their nature? Well, you know, what do we know about them? Not very little. It almost always has to do with procedures. But, of course, procedures are an interesting part of true crime. I mean, when you've got, uh, when with the development of DNA testing, and um, that, that just completely changed crime investigation. You know, the idea that something like the, someone like the Golden State Killer can be caught 20 years or 25 years after he, he stopped committing crimes is, is just astonishing. Right. And uh, it, it's, in a way, it's a, little, it's a little disheartening because you look back at the old crimes, the Jack the Rippers and the Black Dahlias, and you say to yourself, oh, if they had DNA testing, what would what difference would it have made? What would we would they have solved it? I mean, right. they I don't even they barely had fingerprints with Jack the Ripper. Right, right. Well, and the other thing that's kind of fascinating is, is that if you go back and like as big of a Sherlock Holmes fan as I am, um, and that gave birth to the mystery. Like, sure, I mean, Sherlock Holmes is kind of like the Superman of the mysteries of the mystery world. Um, there were mystery stories before Sherlock Holmes came, but if you go to any library and you go to the mystery section, chances are you'll see a little sticker of somebody wearing a, um, a deer stalker and holding a, holding a magnifying glass mm -hmm. for that. And a lot of the mysteries that were written, like, like I'm thinking like the Agatha Christie types, uh, heck, uh, my wife and I, we've been watching, re-watching Murder, She Wrote, and um, you go back and watch Matlock, and the way that they caught the criminals was there would always be this level of let's trip up 
the real murderer, to get him to accidentally confess or to say something that would kind of show that he's guilty. And uh, the concept of you don't need to even need to do that today. I've got the blood of you, and this was the blood found at the scene. They match. You don't even need to outthink the other person. Mm-hmm. Not to say that uh, that investigators aren't thinking, but there's. It's not like what it was when they caught criminals back in the day, where it was just kind of like you basically keep asking everybody and it was a lot of persistence and then you find and then you eventually find like little trains of uh, thought and directions that led you back to the killer mm-hmm. you mean what uh, Edgar Allan Poe called ratiocination yeah that type of thing so mm-hmm. yeah exactly so now real quick I want to talk about um, the books you sent me an amazing list of books and you said that these were ones that you started reading when you were young. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm just uh, going to go through the first one. We're, I'm just going to go through your list, and we're just going to talk about them. And uh, what I'm going to do is, um, when I do publish this, I'm going to put this in the show notes, and I'm going to have links uh, back to uh, Everybody Loves Goodreads. All right. the amazing site and we'll have links to them so people can go see where they can get them of course we will have links to uh, Mrs. Wakeman versus the Antichrist and the uh, uh, President's Vampire uh, it might be better to link it to the book The Bye Bye Man oh okay that's what I mean yeah, yeah. that's yeah so because The Bye Bye Man great great book well it was a story in The President's Vampire mm-hmm. and it's a great book interesting movie that inspired it so, yeah so anyway all right let's talk about the first book it was written by victoria lincoln in 1967 it is called mm-hmm. a private disgrace lizzie borden by daylight yes now do you remember the first time you read that uh i don't but i can i do remember finding the uh, true crime section in the local library and they had a small collection of crime books it was it wasn't much so i was able to read all of them pretty quickly uh but i do remember this book uh for some reason my memory of reading true crime books it's always uh, a summer's day and i'm sitting outside reading and i'm very very young and uh this was uh, this was a book written by one of Lizzie Borden's neighbors. She was a child at the time. Oh, and Yeah. And oh, she, Mrs. Borden, well, no, Miss Borden, I'm sorry, Miss Borden, lived a few houses away. So one of the things that makes this book so interesting is Victoria Lincoln's insight into Fall River life and Fall River society because she was a part of it. Almost everyone who writes about it is very much an outsider, but she was an insider. So I think she might have understood the Borden household a little better than uh, some other people. Uh, the it, I didn't believe her explanation. She thought that Lizzie had a kind of an epilepsy. I don't remember the kind offhand. I think it might have been temporal lobe epilepsy where a person can... They don't have 
actual full-blown seizures, but they do have odd times, like they'll stare and they'll have odd ticks and they'll, they won't know what they're doing. And I think that was her explanation for why Lizzie did it. I, I personally think it was much more straightforward. It was a, it was a crime uh, committed because she was angry and worried about losing her inheritance or worried about sharing her inheritance. And uh, so she just went ahead and did it. But again, the, the book the book really gives you a wonderful sense of what Fall River was like or might have been like in the 1890s. Uh, I, like I said, it's, I, I am, there has been a lot of information has come out since this book was written. Right. And if you want the best book on Lizzie Borden, this is not what you read, but this is one of the Lizzie Borden books that you read. Right, right. Now, was she ultimately... Not, not that you want to give, if Lizzie Borden was the one that murdered the person, or murdered her father and her stepmother, not mm-hmm. that she gives them a pass, but is there kind of like a, is there kind of like an explanation as to why Lizzie Borden did what she did? Well, uh, yes. As, as opposed to like, you know, like she had a very difficult childhood, or her dad was a very difficult person was was that at all discussed uh to tell you the truth it's been a long time since i read it the thing that struck me the most was the uh again the evocation of the period and the people because these were slightly different people than we're used to in fact one of the uh, not too many years after reading the book i found an essay written by florence king who wrote a book called Wasp, Where Is Thy Sting?, which is a comic look at white Anglo-Saxon Protestant life in America. And she does a critique of Victoria Lincoln's book and discusses how her descriptions of everything that happened in the Borden house really fit into uh, King's view of of what white Anglo-Saxon Protestant life is like in in the United States, especially back then. So again, if if you're going to read a private disgrace, I would follow it by um, by trying to find Florence King's essay about it. It's very funny. Right. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Now let's jump to your next. Let's jump to the next book. Mm-hmm. It is called Ten Rillington Place. And it is by, oh, I'm going to get his name wrong, Ludovic Kennedy? Did I say that yeah, correct? I think so, yeah. Okay. I've never actually said it out loud myself, so I guess it's right. Okay, gotcha. Now, I'm going to read one of the reviews that um, that Amazon.com has um, about the book. And it says, this is the story of two men. Mr. Kennedy tells at the outset, one who loses his wife and a baby to murder is falsely accused and put to death, and the other, a vicious, pathetic, city, seedy serial killer. The labyrinths of the story are thus. Mr. Evans, his wife, and baby rent rooms and a doll-sized house in Notting Hill. In this house, on the ground floor, are Mr. Christie and his wife. An elderly man also resides here, but he is away. Before the bodies of Mrs. Evans and her baby are discovered in the wash house, Mr. Evans turns himself into the police and although illiterate and possessing the mentality of a ten-year-old 
confesses twice to the murders. Okay, how did you discover? Was this one of your library, one of the books uh, at the library that you found? I mean, it was either at the library I, or I bought a beat up soft cover book uh, at, 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 a, at a yard sale. I don't remember which one. I think I, I think that was a yard sale book. But the um, that is a, that is a good example of a book that's probably very out of date. The uh, Ludwig Kennedy had a a definite agenda when he wrote that book. He uh, so you know bearing keep that in mind. It's still a terrific book, but the since then we've learned a lot more about Christie. Uh, you know, the the man his name was uh, John Reginald Halliday Christie. He was the uh, he was a necrophile who brought women back to his his horrible little apartment and uh, he would pretend to give them medicine that he would hook up to the gas so they would become unconscious at least that's what he says he did it's not entirely clear because he never stopped lying but anyway they did end up dead and strangled and he apparently was a necrophile and he had a he did a bunch of revolting things and he say he uh, he buried the gar the bodies in the garden and he buried them in the um he actually ended up killing his wife and then he lost all restraint and he just tore he be he buried her under the floorboards and then there was a little closet in the a little pantry i guess it was in the kitchen and he put I think four or five women's bodies in there and just and just put a layer of wallpaper on it and abandoned the apartment renting it out to someone else that he had no right to rent it to but uh, oh my gosh you walk in and you're like there's something off in here I can't put my finger yes. on it it doesn't smell great <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> but uh, so it, again Christie is an absolutely revolting character there he had if he had a redeeming quality, I don't know what it was. Okay, you said he was a very revolting character? Yeah, yeah. Uh, Christie was a revolting character, and he did commit a, a several murders. But that doesn't mean that he necessarily killed the woman upstairs. It could very well be that her husband, that, that uh, Beryl Evans, that her husband killed her, and that he was hanged because and he was rightly found guilty and rightly hanged. The idea that two stranglers could live in one house just seemed like too much of a coincidence to people. But there, you know, there was some forensic evidence. You know, the the uh, it wasn't as simple as it looked. Right. And Kennedy had no real interest in exposing the complexity of it because he, if I remember correctly, he was very much anti-death penalty and one of, he was using the Christie story as, I mean, it was as an argument against it. Gotcha. So, uh, so it wasn't like he was, so it was more or less he had felt sorry for someone that clearly had the mentality of someone that was, like you said, 10 years old, and maybe it turns out, no, this guy, there's a chance that this guy really did kill his wife. Well, um, you, can have, you can have a mentality of a 10-year-old and commit murder. Many people have done things like that. Right. It, it's just that being a pathetic figure doesn't mean you're innocent. 
Right. There was there was no reason for him to start confessing to police. Right. Uh, whether he killed his baby or whether Christie did that, that's another that's another uh, question. And even though we're talking about books, the the original movie of Ten Rillington Place is absolutely amazing. It gives you 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 really get a feeling for what a grimy, horrible life they led in this uh, in this place, living on top of each other in this nasty little uh, in these nasty little flats on this nasty street, and uh, Christie it just comes across as awful as he real probably really was in real life. Right, right, sounds like it. Now. Let's uh, go to your next book, Mostly Murder by Sidney, great last name, Smith. Yes, uh, and a rarer last name. Yeah, very rare last name. Um, and this is the story. It seems like that this is um, a memoir by a forensic. Yes. Uh, for, by a forensic, uh, forensic uh, investigator. Yes. And, uh, and I was wondering, let, let's go ahead and tell me, what did you think of Sidney Smith? Sidney Smith is fascinating. I, he is um, he is one of the UK's great forensics um, investigators. He he pioneered a lot of a lot of techniques, but the thing that really makes him interesting is the number of famous cases he was involved in, and he knew everybody that was. Um, that really started uh, forensics in in Great Britain. Uh, Sir Bernard Spilsbury, who really is the the founder of it in in the UK. But Sidney Smith was less of a... um, He wasn't such a dramatic character the way Spilsbury was. He was quiet, kind of a mousy man with a bald head who very quietly went about his work and investigated some of the most famous cases in the UK during his lifetime. He also did investigations in Egypt and uh, I think he was I think he was called some other places too that were in the Commonwealth at the time uh, where he where he uh, he applied his his uh, his expertise to to local crimes but um, that he he really introduced me to forensics I mean, uh, I never knew, for example, ab- uh, about using fly larvae to establish time of death. He he was one of the earlier earliest people to superimpose a face over a skull to see if all the features lined up. That I, I, he he did that with a very famous case, the case of Dr. Buck Ruxton who uh, murdered his wife and the maid and uh, chopped up their bodies. And he was able to take the skull again and superimpose the wife's face over it. And it's, you can't deny it, looking at it, it is so obviously right. her skull. It's, that is, that's a technique that's still, that's still used. I haven't read the book in years, but again, it was, it was one of those books that's just, it's a part of the furniture of your mind, you know? It's right. it's not just a book. It was your introduction to a whole aspect of life. And again, he's such a he's such 
a self-effacing character that you don't his ego does not get in the way the way somebody like Spillsbury's did right right what you're talking about reminds me of and I want to make sure I get get this oh by the way he knew Joseph Bell oh oh interesting yeah yeah the guy that inspired uh, Conan Doyle to make um, uh, to uh, create Sherlock Holmes mm-hmm. I think he was a student uh, where, when, where Joseph Bell was teaching Oh, interesting. That, I wouldn't be surprised to see that connecting. Now, when mm-hmm. you mentioned the um, superimposed the skull over the face over the skull, that reminds me of Frank Bender, the forensic sculptor, who um, he would like. They would give him. Um, they would give him skulls, mm-hmm. and he would. He would basically remake the face off this. Or not that they'd give him the skull, but he would remake the face from a plaster cast of the skull that was given to him, so that people mm-hmm. would be like, "Oh, here's what this person looked like," and um, he was the big reason why they caught John List back right, in, right back in the day. So I wouldn't be surprised if the, there was connection there between the two of them. Well, I, I, I'm sure he knew Sidney Smith's work, and of course, the, you know the uh, the superimposition was done i believe before they started getting really into the the uh restoration i don't know when that was first done i've seen some very early examples of it uh some of these are, and they're very odd to look at but mm. um but the, the, some of them are also very impressive but i don't i don't know the history of that too well right well but what's interesting about that is is that when you see like the history of that type of superimposition of things and you're just like wow there's no way that this would work today well the thing is is that that's where we need that's where forensics needed to start in order to get to where it is today if that, it's, still, it's still done today well I mean like in a more complicated way than what it is uh, to, like to more or less they had to start someplace much the same way that DNA testing had to start with a hundred years ago with fingerprinting. You know what I mean? Like it just kept, um, the forensic um, investigators kept adding and adding and adding different criteria. They try this, take this away, this works better, that doesn't work at all, to what we have today as the modern CSI. I mean like what we have today is built on a hundred, hundred and fifty years of of investigation techniques. That's true, but we also have our fads and our oddities. For example, um, um, lie detectors are still used, even though there is really very little compelling evidence for their for their value. In fact, police will eliminate people as suspects based on the responses they get on lie detectors. Also, uh, profiling is a very iffy is a very iffy technique, possibly because it became so popular and so many people were doing it that a lot of uh, subpar profiling was done. You know, again, I, 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 that's a, that's a hard call because profiling is just was so incredibly popular for a while. Right. That, that it's easy to forget how often it, it's been wrong. 
and how often it's misled investigators. Right, and that's like right up there with, uh, I know that you have a real, um, you have a real unhappy attitude toward um, memory, uh, to for like forgotten memories where you put people under hypnosis and then say, okay, tell us about the time when you were attacked by somebody. And then this person can vividly recall when they were attacked, even though it never happened. Well, um, yeah, that's a little different, though, than what police use hypnosis for. There, there have been examples where, where police use, use hypnosis to do nothing except try to get the person who was, the, try to get the witness to clarify their memories. And there have been examples where it really has worked. Uh, for example, I, I, I was watching, I just happened to have been watching a documentary the other night where under hypnosis a woman was able to provide a sketch of a man who later when they caught him, the sketch was extremely accurate. So maybe it's a coincidence, maybe not, I, I don't know. You know, when these things, when these things hit, they tend to make a bigger, they tend to uh, be more impressive than the hundred times it didn't work. Right, right. The same, the same thing with psychic detectives. They might, they'll be wrong a thousand times, but that one time they're right is incredibly impressive. Right, exactly. Uh, yeah. Um, now, let's talk about your next book, uh, Very Straightforward, Hunting Humans by Michael Newton. It's, it's an encyclopedia, right? That's exactly what it is, and it is uh, one of a half dozen books he wrote, including Still at Large, uh, Bad Girls Do, and a few others that he uh, that he produced. And I can't imagine anyone who loves true crime not owning these books. You know, they, they some of them are a little out of date because certain crimes have been solved, um, certain bits of information have come out, and that, that's always going to be a problem with, with a true crime book. It does tend to get out of date. So, you know, again, even though some of these things have to be taken with a grain of salt, they, they are indispensable books simply for the amount of information they contain. There are good websites like Murderpedia, right. which actually contains whole sections of Michael Newton's books, which he, he probably is not too happy about. Right. But... Um, but it is again these are indispensable books not only does he not only does he present you with tons of information but he in some of them at the back he even will have lists of lesser known criminals lesser known crimes unsolved crimes and he'll have like a little system of numbers of victims how it was how the crimes were committed um, why the crimes were committed. They're, they're, again, they're just, if anyone who, who loves true, true crime just has to have these books. Right. And um, I'm going to say this, some, a lot of the authors that, you're, that we've been talking about today are no longer with us, but I'm doing a quick check, and Michael Newton is very much around, and he's got a website, and it's michaelnewton.homestead.com. And he's been writing since 1977, and he's got 
lot of books. In fact, he does a lot of paranormal books too. Yeah, I'm you know I'm not thrilled with everything he's written, but uh, I do love his I do love his true crime books. Right. I, I love his I love his encyclopedias. Right. And uh, yeah. And it's usually pretty easy to get your hands on some of these. Wow, when you look at the stuff that he has. Oh yeah, yeah. You and you can get different versions of it. He's he is he's a machine the way he produces books. Yeah. Wow, this is amazing. I might have to see if we can have, try and have a conversation with him. Oh, uh, good luck. He's not the easiest person to get. Okay, it's worth a try. He's right. Yeah, he, he is. All right, now let's talk about your, uh, speaking of encyclopedias, the Encyclopedia of Murder by, uh, by Colin Wilson and Patricia Pittman. Yeah, this, oh. this was another library book. Okay. It was a uh, little fat brick of a book with very small type, and it contains short descriptions of almost, I, I don't know if they were all British murders, but they were mostly British murders. Mm-hmm. And that's why I actually know probably more about British murders than I do about American ones, because so many of my favorite writers... Well, at the time, I, you know, at the time when I was a kid, I, I would have known more about British murders than American ones because so many of my, f- the, the the best true crime writers were were British. So this this was one of those books that I read and reread and read and read and read and read and probably and you know that's how I ended up meeting my first school psychiatrist. <laughs> because you kept reading that book over and over again. <laughs> but the uh, the. You, the this is the book that introduced me to a lot of the classic British crimes. Uh, John George Haig, who murdered people and who murdered whole families and dissolved their bodies in acid baths so that he could get their money. He, he was, he later became notorious when he was in court because he tried to go for an insanity plea where he claimed that he drank their blood before he uh, dissolved their bodies but he was just trying to get into a mental hospital because he knew he knew he'd be hanged he was he was nothing but a con man a murderer and a thief oh wow and a and a forger right oh my uh, gosh yeah he grew up in a in a very strict religious group called the Plymouth Brethren, which was the same group that produced Aleister Crowley. Anyway, the... Uh, <laughs> wow. and, and, and then there were people like Neville Heath, who was a, a sexual sadist, and he committed, I think, at least two murders, uh, pretty one right after the other, uh, and he was a... he was a very handsome, well-spoken man who pretended to be uh, an officer in in the RAF, but and he I think he had been at one time, but he kept getting thrown out for uh, impersonating higher officers, wearing medals he wasn't entitled to, using fake names of nobility. Um, but I, I remember one of the things that he was caught because he had a whip with a very particular kind of leather plating on it that exactly matched the body of his first victim. They were pretty disgusting crimes. So, uh, you know, that was one of those cases where the criminal, where I, I tended to, I tended to avoid the details of the crime just because 
it was such a great slice of wartime Britain. Um, very you know, of I think he was in the city of London, and he ended up at one of the beach resorts, which is where he met his second victim. So again, it's it's a nice. It's a nice period piece, but the crimes themselves were vicious. Right. Oh, wow. Yeah, but the, the book is filled. Uh, Encyclopedia of Murder is filled with these these stories, stories that were a really big deal at the time and have since been forgotten. Sidney Fox, uh, again, Buck Ruxton. Oh, so many. Uh... Yeah. People are going to listen to this and be the reason why they go out and buy a gun or at least pepper spray or have a cop crossbow by the bed now. Well, you know, if if you uh, if you don't go out to someone's workshop, um, if you go out to someone's workshop rather and you see great big barrels full of acid, leave. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> exactly. Now, speaking of um, true crime writer uh true crimes from the united kingdom let's talk about william roughhead yeah william, yeah william roughhead i think he was scottish yeah. william william roughhead was one of the great uh true crime writers he he's kind of set the he he really set the standard for good true crime writing he um i believe he was a lawyer Yes. Well, no, it, it was. He's. It's in Britain, so he's probably a barrister or a. Um, what's the other one? Barrister and. Oh, oh. it was the one that um, Jonathan Harker was. This. Yeah, I can't think of the term. Yeah. But, but the one who actually tries the case in court. I, I don't know which one uh, Roughhead was, but he uh, he understood the law and he understood how these things work, and he has, of, he has, a. Um, he does not have a sentimental view of crime or criminals. He tends to be, he says what he thinks and he can be, he can be devastating, but he is also very funny and he writes so well it hurts to read him sometimes because you read that and say, oh, I wish I could write like that. Right. He, he writes just this beautiful prose that's funny and informative and some of it's a little old-fashioned and a lot of it's old-fashioned but if you if you want to if you want to hear if you want to read the person who set the, the standard for good true crime read him also you you he never i don't believe he ever wrote an entire book on a single crime which i think is interesting because so many true crime books are padded right and and it's I don't blame the authors. I understand. You've got a hundred pages of good material, and they want a two hundred page book. It has to be two hundred pages. So you end up talking about related crimes and this and that, and you you know you, you've got to fill it in. Or you'll include something like the death of Edgar Allan Poe because you're trying to stretch out a murder that occurred in 1850. And it, make it, and a, a lot of people do it, and I I really, like I said. I don't particularly like it, but I don't blame them. I, I understand it. Uh, with Roughhead, all you get is meat, no fat. He tells you what happened, how it happened, when it happened, and, and what he thinks about it. 
and uh, it's he's got a rigorous mind. Right. And like I said, it, you, you'll get none of that. Oh, there's something that so many true crime writers do, and I know most people will love it. I'm not going to name names, but she's an in incredibly popular true crime writer where she pretends to know what the criminal is thinking. Mm. I hate that. I hate, I can't describe how much I hate that because you don't know. How dare you? You have no idea. You don't know what the criminal was thinking. You don't know what the victim was thinking. And you're not writing a novel. And if you want to write a novel, call it that. You get none of that nonsense with Roughhead. He tells you what happened. Right. Now, is that because um, the book that you specifically mentioned was The Murderer's Companion? Is that the one that you think that you said was like, wow? Like where he has a lot of this information in that you were talking about. No, that's just the only one I had. Oh, okay. I didn't realize. I thought he had done others. So he did. He did a lot of them. Okay. Uh, it wasn't. It wasn't until years later that I, I read some of his other books. But that was the. But that was the book that introduced me to him, and it was also one of the very earliest books that I owned on uh, on uh, true crime. Speaking of owning the book. I'm looking at the uh, Amazon page for The Murderer's Companion by William Ruffhead. Take mm -hmm. a shot in the dark how much they're selling it for the hardcover edition. Oh, Don, I, I, I don't want to know. I, I'm sure it's some insane number. $851.90. <laughs> okay, now... Yeah, but I'd be willing to guess you can get it. Yeah, I'll be willing to... Uh, you can probably get a soft cover for a lot less. Yeah, twenty-seven dollars. <laughs> All right. Yeah, you see that? That's buy that one. Yeah, but that's still pretty good. <laughs> it, it might, it prob it's probably even available as a PDF online. Right. And Roughhead is long dead, so you're not taking food out of his mouth. Right. Right. That's great. Um, now the next book. We're continuing on with our British theme. Holy cow! This is great. Just because I'm looking at the price of how much this book goes for, <laughs> the Victorian Underworld by Kello Chesney. I love this book. This was, this was one of those books that again, just opened up a whole world to me. It it's, it is about exactly what it sounds like. It is about the the Victorian Underworld, the criminals, the fences, the thieves, the con men. Uh, the prostitutes, the counterfeiters, all, the whole Victorian underworld is looked at. And one of the things that makes the book so wonderful is that he goes into how Victorian burglars worked, what tools they used, oh, um, yeah, what what con what were their what con games practice. Uh, some of these are still done. The um, and again if. If you like Victorian England, this, this is an indispensable book because it reveals a part of the Victorian world that did not get into Dickens. Dickens loved the underworld. He would go, he would be escorted by these, by these policemen through the slums of, of Whitechapel and places like that, and he was fascinated by it. But, and, and you do get a sense of it from his books, but in this book you find out what they really did. And for example, you find out that Victorian householders practically turned their houses into fortresses at night. They uh, they had 
wooden shutters that they locked. The butler would sleep inside the pantry with silver service, so he would keep an eye on it. Everyone had guns and and knives and clubs to protect themselves at night. And it was, and you had to, and the burglars would still manage to get into these places. It it really is a terrific book. I, I, I assume you can uh, get it for less than $800? Yeah, however, it is still $184. Again, I'm sure there's a PDF of it somewhere. There's a paperback of it for $66 and a mass market paper, paperback for $49. I think that's what I have. But uh, anyway, the um, it's, it's certainly a book worth having, and uh, it's got some great illustrations by Gustave Doré. Oh, that's awesome. Now, uh, do you remember any particular story, uh, story that stuck out to you that uh, you found yourself going, oh, that is interesting? Well, a part of what I found so interesting were, 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 the, um, were the burglary tools. There was something called a center bit, which was a kind of a drill, but what you did was you, you stuck the thing into the wood and you made, it, it had like a little arm that came off with a cutter at the end, and you would go around and around and around with that little cutter until you had cut a hole into the wooden shutter and then you could reach in and unlock the uh, unlock the shutter from the inside mm. and, oh they had they had ways of bending bars they had safe cracking methods like I said it, it's all in that in that book and it's a wonderful read oh that's great yeah now our final book that we're going to be talking about tonight the complete Jack the Ripper by Donald Rumbelow yeah and I don't what think... What a great first name. Don, yeah, well, not the Donald part, but, well, actually, Don. Don, Don is a good name. Uh-huh. It's a wonderful name. It's the greatest name ever. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, now, the complete Jack the Ripper. I think maybe one or two other people have written on this subject. Yes, yes. Well, let, this is going... This, again, comes under the heading of books that were extremely important to me and that this book introduced me to the subject. I, of course, knew Jack the Ripper from movies and TV, but this was the first book I ever got on it. And it was a book that I read till I broke the spine. Uh, I I read it over and over and over again. It was fascinating. Actually, a lot of, a lot of, if I remember correctly, a lot of the complete Jack the Ripper comes from Kello Chesney's book, where he took, he uses it to describe the Victorian underworld and the milieu that these women lived in and, and that Jack the Ripper probably lived in. And, you know, what the times were like, how these people lived, what a, what a, a hard existence, even a brutal existence it was. And he does not have... He, uh, what, one of the things that also makes this book a little different than many of them is he is not... He does not have a, a ripper suspect that he's pushing. He does not. Ha- he does not have a theory that he's pushing. It's a very, very good book. Uh, it is. I don't believe it's the most important ripper book. I think that. I believe the title of that book is the complete history of Jack the Ripper, and what that book is, is a collection of 
all the actual documents related to the Ripper crimes that have survived. It's all of the, it's all of the um, autopsies, all of the uh, coroners hearings where they would you know someone they had to decide is this murder is this suicide blah 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 all uh, all of the available police investigation material uh so it is a colossal bore to read but once you've read that book you get a very different view of jack the ripper it strips away all the romance it strips away jack the ripper with his top hat and cape going through the misty night uh, there's none of that stuff. You read this and you say, this is a hard scrabble story. These are poor, put upon, drunken people who are leading very hard lives under right. very difficult circumstances. Now, Rumbelo does talk about that in his book, but he also, he, he, he tells you about the investigation. So you learn, you learn about the inspectors, you will learn about the the police. You learn about all the all the letters that were written, supposedly from Jack the Ripper. You you find out. Um, this was where I learned the names of what were then the favorite Ripper suspects. Right. And ba back then there was a, a man named Montague John Druitt who was the who was the most popular Ripper suspect. He since he he's since been joined by two or three hundred other popular ripper suspects but um right the joke that we always tell is pretty much if anybody had anything to do with any sort of medical background lived in london and was at all famous then somebody's going to write a book pushing that he was jack the ripper well sure I mean, you've got books books have to be sold yeah. but uh but this is a an excellent book i suppose I suppose that since, the, again, it's probably a little out of date, but for someone who hasn't read a lot of Jack the Ripper, this is a great way to start. And one of the things that really worked for me and one and made this made this better than the average book was that he also described other Ripper type murderers, Ripper type murderers that were caught, and the last few of them i think the last few chapters are on that and it, it it helps put it into some kind of context because you know at the time when that book came out in 1976 serial killers were not a big subject right it was you know they were starting to be you know the ted bundys the um Hillside Stranglers, the John Wayne Gacy's, they were starting to make a real impression on the public, but there wasn't a lot to read. Now there's more that can, more that possibly can be read. But again, this is an excellent book, and I'm always going to regard it with a, with a lot of warmth. In fact, a lot of my friends in the seventh grade uh, borrowed it from me. Oh, nice. Yeah. And this is what it, got you. And this is what got you sent down to the guidance counselor's office. Well, it's one of them. <laughs> nice. Well, and Robert, I also, if people can get their hands on copies of these books, um, I'd also like to add onto their list the Bye Bye Man or the slash the President's Vampire 
or Mrs. Wakeman versus the Antichrist. Two very good, two very good books worthy of the uh, list that was presented tonight. Well, okay, I appreciate that, but those are not true crime books. They have some true crime in them, but I just so just so listeners know, they're they're a mixture of paranormal crime, uh, folklore, and a lot of other things that I find interesting. Right, but at the same time, still very very good reads. Very yes. good reads. Yes. So I say that. Well, my friends, thank you so much for listening to uh, Conversations of the Strange. And Robert, I want to say thank you. Robert Damon Schneck, uh, he is on Facebook. If you look up um, Historian of the Strange, he's posting some very amazing, long forgotten, crazy stories about murders, the paranormal. And really go check it out. Um, he has something great every day uh robert is also a really nice guy too um and again just pick up his books check out these books at the very least you can find them online they are mentioned uh or at least read the descriptions of them and find books written by the authors uh where you can because again we these are just really fantastic writers And once again, everyone, thank you very much for listening. I am Don Everett Smith, Jr., and I am your host. And thanks again for listening to Conversations of the Strange. Welcome to Conversations of the Strange. Conversations of the Strange.